This morning we're going to begin John chapter 6. If you will please turn there. This is a very familiar story from the scriptures where Jesus feeds the 5,000. You probably remember this from flannel boards and Sunday school and whatnot. Um, we're going to look at it as the struggle that the disciples had was doubt and how we have a similar struggle and yet he continues to serve us and love us and save us anyway, which is the gospel. So before we go to the word, let's go to him and ask for help with it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we come to this story about you that has been told hundreds of times in hundreds of different ways. We pray that you would help us to see it as you would have us see it, to glean from it the truth of your gospel, to see your grace and mercy anew, to see how you serve us even when we are without faith. So, Father, help us. We are in desperate need of your help to understand and study your word. Convict us of our sin. Show us your truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning, by way of introduction, I'd like for you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. We're going to read a couple of little passages from this book concerning the prophet Elijah. 2 Kings chapter 4. And these prophets of old did some pretty interesting things and saw some very interesting things. But this particular, these particular stories are very good because they show us a pointing forward to what Jesus is doing in this passage that we're in today. So let's look at the first seven verses of 2 Kings chapter 4 and then the last couple of verses of the chapter. First seven verses. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elijah, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me what, what you have in your house. And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. Then go and shut the door behind yourself, and you and your sons pour into all these vessels. When one is full, set it aside. So she went from him, shut the door behind herself and her sons, and she poured, and, and as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not, not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. And she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Now skip to 42, chapter 2 Kings 4, 42, and we're going to read these last couple of verses, 42 through 44. A man came from Baal Shaphtashah, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left. 
according to the word of the Lord. So now let's go back to John chapter 6. So in, in these stories, we have a prophet of God, Elisha, taking a small bit of something, oil or barley loaves, and making an excess from it in order to bless the people that he was serving. So hopefully this causes some alarms to go off in our head. As the passage that we're going to be looking at today, the Lord Jesus is doing the exact same thing. Except in this passage, it's not feeding a widow and her couple of sons or a hundred men, but it's feeding 5,000 men, not counting women and children. And this story is found in all four Gospels. It's one of the rare ones, making it particularly important to our study through the Gospel, through this particular Gospel. In it, Jesus performs a miracle witnessed by thousands of people which will solidify his name and his renown in the region and begin this trajectory that can't be returned from. This is a movement towards his death in Jerusalem. His continued run-ins with authorities, his making a name for himself, all of this will lead to his arrest and his death. And of course, this was all planned from the beginning so this isn't a surprise to Jesus or anything. So as we see this miracle of Elisha being brought to fulfillment in Jesus, we see yet another instance of the Old Testament coming alive in the presence of Jesus. I read recently a quote from a Scottish theologian, 18th century Scottish theologian by the, man, by the name of John Brown of Haddington. And he says this, he says, the New Testament is little more than a representation of the fulfillment of the types and prophecies of the old concerning Jesus Christ and his gospel church. And we make sure that's known every, every week here, that the Old Testament is just pointing forward to the new. The New Testament is simply an interpretation of the old. All of it is about Jesus Christ. And so as we go through this passage today, we're going to see how what Jesus did was just looking back on his continued faithfulness through all the ages. We're going to see that we are quick to doubt the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus. We're easily at the circumstances of life worry us. Even when we, even intellectu when we intellectually understand the ability of our Lord, we still doubt. We'll look at how our lack of faith isn't a deterrent, thankfully, to the goodness of Jesus, his mercy, and his grace towards us and our continued growth as believers, and even his conversion of unbelievers who might be in our path. And so for, from today's text, we're going to consider two points, the grace of God when we limit him, and then second, the mercy of God when we're afraid. So... Let's stand together as we read the text. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 22. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 22. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. 
Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing the large crowd that was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread, so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus answered to him, or Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered up for them twelve, or filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign of what he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea had become rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So for a little bit of background on this text, the text actually sets us up fairly well with the scene. It starts out by saying, after this, and just a note about the book of John, we aren't sure how much time has passed here. Some of the theologians, commentators that I read think maybe a year and a half up to that much. John isn't a sequential book, unlike the other Gospels. So sometimes it's hard for us to place this story in the order of events. So he says, after this, we don't really know what this is and where that's where it kind of fits in. You can read the other Gospels and kind of get an idea of where this story fits in. A large crowd of people were following him because he was healing the sick. And this makes sense to all of us. Anytime we're sick or anytime we have a loved one who's sick, we're usually willing to do just about anything to find some sort of relief. So here they're following Jesus because they hear that he's healed some folks. Maybe he'll heal me too. And so they're following him around. And it's the Passover. So there's lots of people around. During the Passover, what do they celebrate? They celebrate the deliverance from Egypt and their entry into the Promised Land, the most important celebration of the year for the Jewish people. And this took place in this in an area today that's known as the Gennesaret Valley. Very beautiful location. You can look at pictures on the Internet, or you can actually go there and see it. I've never been there to see it, but it looks like a beautiful place. And the text tells us that the green, or the grass was green, so you can kind of see these these green fields. The grass isn't green for very long in this part of the world. And so you can kind of get an idea. This is probably early spring. You can really picture what's going on. Jesus and his disciples are up on this mountain. They see the crowd coming toward them. And Jesus has this conversation with his disciples. It's time to eat. 
There's no food because, of course, 5,000 people, none of them except for maybe this little boy has come prepared to eat or to feed themselves, which seems kind of strange to me. But here they come, and Jesus opens up with his, this conversation with his disciples, and that brings us to the first point, the grace of God when we limit him. He sees this large crowd, and he says to the disciples, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? How many times have we looked at a crowd of 5,000 and thought that? Where can we get bread for all these people to eat? I can't even imagine. So the test, the text makes sure that we understand that this is a test. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Of course, Jesus knew what he was going to do. We aren't given this type of insight very often, like this is a test. So it should give us a bit of pause. But at the same time, we shouldn't be too quick to assume that God is testing us in situations. I've heard people say, well, God is just testing me in this situation. Because we don't really know what God is doing outside of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which we have here in this passage. So we, should, we shouldn't be quick to say that either, that he's testing us. We have, ins- we have that inspiration from the Holy Spirit right here in John. So we get some insight into the mind of God. You know, we, we can often use this terminology, and I hear believers using this terminology, or it could be that our it could be that our tests of faith, as people will often say, are just part of everyday life. So, however, here we have an actual test of the faith for whatever reason. So we need to pay close attention. And so, first, you have Philip, and I call Philip the mathematician, because Philip is asked this question: Where are we to get bread? And Philip looks at this, and he answers it in a very mathematic, precise way. I am often this guy, admittedly. Anytime I'm presented with a situation that seems impossible, I do the math. We just purchased a van. You guys uh, noticed we, we didn't have our former entry into the demolition derby out there. We actually purchased a new vehicle. and uh, Well, not new, new to us. And so before... I purchased that vehicle, I did the math on it. It had to make sense in order to enter our family into this financial arrangement, or I wouldn't have done it. I take that same mentality oftentimes into my faith. I do the math. If it doesn't make sense, I won't do it. And so what does Philip say? 200 denarii wouldn't be enough. You can almost envision him crunching the numbers. Let's see, uh, there's about 5,000 men there. Probably double that if you count women and children. Uh, everyone gets a piece of bread. That's 80 cents a piece. And he's like doing all this number crunching in his head. 200 denarii. That's 200 days wages. Wouldn't be enough for everyone to get just a little. Philip likely knew his Bible. And he probably knew the story of Elisha that we read this morning. A story when doing the obvious math wasn't enough at all. Doing the math of the widow's oil wasn't important. She had one jar of oil, but apparently that was enough to pay off all of her debts and keep her family fed for a long time. Feeding a hundred men with just a few barley loaves, you can't math that out. What did Philip fail to calculate? He failed to calculate that the, the fact that the God of gods incarnate there before him was standing right there next to him. 
He had seen Jesus do miracles before. He knew what he was capable of, and yet he chose to figure it out instead, demonstrating a lack of faith. Obviously, using our heads to make a decision isn't a bad thing, so I'm not saying that. You shouldn't purchase a vehicle or make a decision about life in general without first making some sort of sound judgment based on the facts, which you know to be true. The Lord gives us heads to do this kind of thing. However, there are certain areas of our lives where we just have to trust the Lord, that he's going to do what's right. And guess what? Everything that he does is right. When it comes to our future, when it comes to our kids, when it comes to our health, whatever it is, we can't just math it out. However, we try to do that. And this often leads to what? Stress, heartache, desperation. What would the Lord have us do? Just simply trust in him for the things that we know nothing about. Because what does it say of the Lord? He knew exactly what he was going to do. Even though he asked Philip this question, he knew exactly what he was going to do. Take our church, for instance. It's a step of faith to plan a reformed church with a small group of people. And now we have to trust the Lord that he's going to grow his church. That doesn't mean that we don't do the work of ministry, that we just kind of sit here idly and do nothing. But we have to understand that the Lord is in charge. Philip lost sight of that here. And we are just like Philip. We have to understand that about ourselves as well. Remember that the Lord wasn't panicked at all when he saw the crowds approaching him. We shouldn't panic when it comes to the unknown things of our lives. So what about Andrew? He's the bringer of the group. Remember Andrew, he brought Nathaniel to Jesus back in chapter at the end of chapter 1. Well, now he's bringing this little boy to Jesus. You know, Andrew sees a problem, he hears a problem, he's like, got this. He has this great idea concerning the food situation. He brings this little boy with five barley loaves and two fish. The barley loaves are like the cheapest bread available. This isn't like the real nice bread that you get off the shelf that you only get when it's on sale. This is like the cheapest kind of bread. And he had two little fish. And the purpose of the fish, were there's like little sardines or something like that, they just made the bread taste better. That was their purpose. And so Andrew almost gets it right. He comes up and he brings this little boy up in his lunch and he explains, well, here's five loaves of bread and two fish. And if he'd have stopped there, it would have been great. But what does he do? But what are these for so many? Because he forgets that he was there when Jesus turned water into wine. He forgot that Jesus just got there giving a man a new set of legs, and he walked away that day after 38 years of being lame. Again, a failure of faith. He had the creator of the world right there in his midst, and the calculations just wouldn't add up, so he didn't go with them. However, even though they had this remarkable lack of faith, what does Jesus do anyway? We see Jesus rebuke them here after they go through this, this calculation phase. No, he says, have the people sit down. He takes the boys' lunch, and he makes it into a feast for 5,000 plus, with lots of it left over. Aren't you glad that Jesus takes our complete 
lack of faith, our minuscule faith for those times that we're able to have some, and makes it lots. He makes it something to bless the multitudes. Open up to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. Here we have the people of Israel. Back in 14, they just got through crossing the Red Sea. So this is not too long after they crossed the Red Sea and they've been delivered from Egypt. And let's look at verses 1 through 3 here. Now remember, before I read this, they were in, they were in Egypt. And what was their feelings about Egypt? They hated it. They wanted to leave. They cried out to the Lord, please deliver us. Please send us a deliverer. He did that. Moses, they came in, destroyed Egypt with frogs and flies and blood in the water and all these different stuff, kind of stuff. The Red Sea parted, and he brought his people through to the other side. And they saw all this miraculous stuff right before their eyes, and they were delivered from Egypt, the place they hated. Look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 16. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to him, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill us, to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So, there's people that really hated Egypt all of a sudden wants to go sit next to the meat pots again. They exhibited this complete lack of faith in their Lord. And even an embedded hatred for God. Why is that? Well, we tend to think this way whenever we think we can do it on our own. And we still expect a handout from God. When he doesn't mold to whatever desire we have for a particular situation, we hate him for it. Just like the Jews did here. Well, let's look at verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day they will prepare what they have bring in, and it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it is the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. Because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. What did the Lord do? He heard their grumbling. He, the people said, I want to go back to Egypt where they have meat pots. I want to go back to Egypt where they have onions. That's what it says in another part of the Exodus. They want all these things that they had in Egypt. And he says, you know what? I'm going to rain down bread from heaven that you might eat. Even though I heard your grumbling, 
even though it was directed at Moses. Who was it ultimately directed at? The Lord. Don't we see a similar story today in our own lives? Though we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, though we completely lacked faith and any ability to believe, and we really thought this whole world was all about us, though we could only ever do evil continually, Jesus died so that all of his people might have everlasting life. From the sacrifice of one, all can have life. From the shed blood of Jesus Christ, all who profess belief in his name can have eternal life. Where there is always an abundance of food, where springs of living water never dry up. And this doesn't stop as Christians. He'll still use our lack of faith, our very small faith, which is all we have on our best days, really to do works that we wouldn't believe even if we were told. He will do incredible things through his church despite the church's lack of faith. So brothers and sisters, we believe the words of the text. And I know we do. You guys read and you study your Bibles. I know that as much as any church. However, do we believe that he'll accomplish all that he says? Do we believe that he will get the glory In this horrible world. Do we believe. That he is bringing souls even to himself right now. And he's using our tiny offerings. Our tiny amount of faith. The tiny amount that we're able to give. To bring about redemption to the masses. We trust in the Lord. We must trust in the Lord. That he will do what he came to do. We have to trust in that. And even though we are broken messed up people. He will use us to do it. And so the the next point here is the mercy of God when we are afraid. And so how do the people respond to this? They just got through eating this feast for nothing. They showed up and ate. They wanted to make him king. They said, this is the prophet who has come into the world. They got that part right. But they wanted to make him king. And they wanted to take him by force, which I think I've always thought is kind of funny. That they wanted to make him king. They were, this is the kind of situation where they're planning on storming or taking him and storming him into town. This new all-powerful hero that they have and take over Roman rebellion, the Rome rebellion style. This isn't why Jesus came. Not that he isn't king, of course. But because his mission, mission was to set the captive free. To undo the wrongs that, the sin, had, that sin had left on earth. He set aside his heavenly throne while he was while on earth and took the form of man. It wasn't time for him to be ushered in as king, and particularly in this way, with this mob taking him by force. Their statement, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. That is correct. Remember the prophet from Deuteronomy chapter 18 that we talked about. However, he wasn't coming to overthrow Rome, but to overthrow the curse of sin. And so now he withdraws to the mountain by himself. And the people either find a place to sleep or go home for the evening. We don't really find out what they do until the next day when they follow Jesus across the the lake. The disciples, on the other hand, they were headed to the Capernaum. 
which is kind of across this small little lake here. And it was dark. And so they got on their boat. They're all, most of them are experienced fishermen, so this isn't a big deal to fish in the dark. Usually their work started at dark. You know, I think about getting in a boat at dark with no electricity, which they didn't have back then. But for them, it was old hat. But the sea becomes rough, which again, may not be anything new to them, but it was probably pretty frightening. However, what is new to them is when they're out on the water, they're on their way to Capernaum, is the sight of a man walking on the water. There was Jesus walking on the water. I can't even like grasp what that must have been like. Terrifying. So, of course, what does the text say? They saw him and they were frightened. Of course they were frightened. Maybe their fright was partly storm-related, but seeing a man walking in the darkness amid the chaos of this storm must have really thrown them. But they should have known that Jesus had control over the elements, that he was the creator. And they'd seen him make wine from water. They'd seen him make new legs. Surely walking on water should have been manageable for him. Yet, they were afraid. And then he walks over to the boat, which, you know, the fear is kind of building here, you can imagine. And he's finally going over to lay into them for their unbelief, right? He's finally going to catch up with them and say, why don't you believe? And he does this in other places in the New Testament. And it would have been right for him to do so here. However, what does he say? It is I. Do not be afraid. And verse 21 is incredible. I think we often miss this. They were glad to take him to the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. So it's kind of like they just warped to the land where they were going. Don't really know what went on there. And that's okay. We'll just take the text at face value. So he walks over there. It is I. Do not be afraid. Here in this statement, it is I, the English translation misses this, sadly. Because what Jesus says is literally, I am. Do not be afraid. We see this eight more times in the English Bible. We call these the I am statements of Jesus. But this first one where he says, it is I, is the exact same words in Greek, ego ami. I am. Do not be afraid. If you want to turn to Exodus 3 with me, I'm going to read a passage. Exodus 3, 14 and 15. Why would Jesus say that? I am. Do not be afraid. I'm going to read 13 as well. Exodus 3. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout 
all generations. I am that I am is who Jesus is. He is the light that shines in the darkness, walking in the darkness of the night, walking in the chaos of the storm, on the water. The darkness has not overcome him, and he walks calmly over the surface of the water, unfazed by his creation, because it answers to him, the great I am. And he gets in the boat and has mercy on his fearful disciples, and their journey is immediately over. So for us Christians, whatever it is in life, whatever there is in our life that we might struggle with, it's a lack of faith, whatever, whatever causes us to have a, a little faith or a lack of faith completely, the great I am is the one that said, I have come to set my people free. And he does it. And just like the disciples here, it's in those times that we can often look back. And sometimes even in the midst of that, and we can see that the Lord carried us to the safe, safely to the other side, sometimes without even noting the trip. That he's taken such good care of us that the trip seems effortless. So in conclusion, we are just like these disciples. Oftentimes they are used as examples of what not to do, but we are those examples of what not to do as well. I believe one of the reasons Jesus trained these men is so that we can see that even the best among us are the most unbelieving at times. We need the grace and mercy of our Savior when we don't believe. We need His continued grace and mercy when we do have faith. We don't stop needing it. There will never be a time when we'll look up and say, Oh yeah, I've got plenty on my own. I'll do alright. There's plenty of food. I have plenty of food to feed this giant crowd. There's never going to be a time for that in our lives. Elisha trusted God to provide for the needs of the people then, and he did some pretty incredible things. However, the works that he did pale in comparison to what our Lord Jesus Christ can do. He fed 5,000. He walked on water. He can take a vile sinner, dead in his or her trespasses, and make them alive again, raised to newness of life. He can do that. So Christians, embrace the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has baskets and baskets to spare. He will love and care and walk with us when we are faithless. and He will use us to do his work here. So trust in the Lord while we are here on this earth. And by his grace and mercy, we will be to the other side before we know it. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we struggle just like your disciples did. Even when we see amazing things before us, we'll still struggle because we forget how good you are, and what you've done for us. So, Lord, convict us of our sin. Lead us to the truth. Show us your grace and mercy in massive abundance, because we need lots of it in order to function and in order to live and to serve as you have asked us to. In your name we pray. Amen.